We're going to continue our study through Acts, so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1. If you're there, say amen. All right, today, I hope that what we'll notice here as we study God's word is that we're going to see how God has raised up a plan of deliverance or for deliverance and how God preserved his plan for deliverance and how Israel rejected God's deliverers. We're going to see how this is a human tendency and a tragedy to resist God's plan for deliverance. And when we last left Stephen, we saw him completely calm and composed before the Sanhedrin council, who had just heard the accusations of blasphemy against Stephen from false witnesses. And Luke, if you'll remember with me, back in chapter 6, lists these accusations, starting in verse 11. They they hurled these accusations against him, that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, and that he would not cease speaking blasphemous words against the temple and the law. And they even gave a supposed quote, from Stephen that said that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And we looked at all those things last week. And we addressed how how there was a misunderstanding or a willful misunderstanding by those that heard Stephen speak. And how some of these accusations were only partial truths. And now Stephen is standing before the council in this court session, and he's called upon to give a defense. We see in verse 1, it says, the high priest said, are these things so? And as we'll read, we'll notice that Stephen's response is not a defense because he hasn't done anything wrong. But it's an explanation of the scriptures and how they pointed to Jesus. You see, the main point of the scriptures is about God's salvation made available through Christ. The main point of the scriptures is about God's salvation made available through Christ. It's always focused upon Jesus. He will always be the main point of the scriptures. If we approach the word of God as a rule book, we're going to miss the point. If we approach the word of God as an inspirational book to help us have better lives, we will miss the point. If we approach the word of God in any other way than to find Jesus, we will ultimately miss the point. Jesus is speaking to the uh, Pharisees of the day, the religious leaders of the day in John chapter 5, in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And that is the issue that we are going to be seeing Stephen address today. Let's look at our Bibles, chapter 7, verse 1. Let's read. It says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, And said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives 
and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and went uh, and, and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which he now dwelt. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would, be, uh, would bring them into bondage and oppress them for them 400 years. And the nation to whom they would be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after they come out and serve me in this place, after that they will come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. So what Stephen begins to do, as you'll notice, he doesn't meet these accusations head on, but he begins telling the history of Israel. And he starts with Abraham. He's going to take this approach of reciting Israel's history to show that God actually began his work outside of Israel and never confined himself to one place, such as the land of Israel or the temple. His work will also, this will also point forward to God's work going outside of Israel, even in the book of Acts. But Stephen is going to continue on teaching Israel's history to draw out another point, that Israel is guilty of rejecting God's deliverers. And ultimately, as we'll see next week, how Israel has rejected Jesus the Messiah as we finish up his, his speech here. So we're going to look for a few things when we engage each of these little passages one, we're going to look at the locations. If you notice, if you uh, read ahead or are familiar with this section, uh, Stephen points out a lot of locations. There's cities and towns, places. You'll see Egypt. You'll see Mount Sinai. You'll see the Red Sea. You'll see Mesopotamia and Haran and all those other places. We're going to pay attention to those. We're also going to pay attention to the person, the deliverer. The person that God is using that is rejected by Israel. And then we're going to, as I just said, see how Israel responded in each of those situations. Ultimately, in some form of rejection over this time. So, God's delivery plan first begins with Abraham. And Stephen starts off with saying, and calling, he starts off in a kind way. He says, brethren and fathers, a respectful approach. He's not there to stir the pot, but he is empowered by the Spirit. And sometimes the Spirit will end up, is going to cut to the heart of those who hear. But he's there with respect. He desires that those that are hearing him will listen and, and have understanding that they might even come to know Christ as the Messiah, as Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. And so he says, he begins saying, the God of glory. Now, he uses this specific title for God. God who is characterized by glory. And he, it speaks to the Shekinah glory. Have you heard of that one before, that word Shekinah? The visible radiance of God. If you remember back in the Exodus, that pillar of fire that led Israel by, by night and the cloud by day, or when the temple or when the tabernacle was built, the glory that filled the Holy of Holies, God is characterized by glory. And the scriptures actually will characterize God in many different ways. I have a few of them on. This slide here, if you want to write down. One is the God of comfort. 
He's characterized by comfort. We see God characterized by a God of hope. The God of love. The God of patience. The God of peace. The God of all grace. And the God of truth. And I listed all of those because, you know what, you might be in need of in need of one of those things today. And God is able to meet your needs. He's able to speak to you. He's able to uh, meet you where you are at. And I encourage you to look to God. Look up those scriptures. Meditate upon them. Allow God's word to fill your heart. To know him and who he is in a greater way. But by Stephen using these words... He's refuting, actually, the charge of blasphemy. It was not, he was not blaspheming God, as they accused him of. But he's speaking of the Lord of glory. Or the God of glory. Now, the first location that we come across here, it says, God, the, the God of glory, appeared to our father Abraham. There's the person. When he was in Mesopotamia, there's the place. So Israel's hang-up was that they were concerned with Stephen speaking against the temple in, in, in its association with Israel. And what Stephen is starting out with is he's going to show that God first begins his work with a pagan. One who served other idols, one who served other gods. But God calls out to this man, Abram. It says that he appeared to our father when he was in Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia is in Israel, right? This is far east. It, all of God's working didn't begin in Israel. So the land itself, it's a promise, it's a special thing. But it wasn't uh, what contained God. God is bigger than the land and he began his work outside of the land. And so we see God calling to Abraham outside of the land of Israel. He says, get out of your country and from your relatives. And come to the land that I will show you. And so that was what Abraham heard. And look at verse four, it says, and then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. Now, both the, Chal the land of the Chaldeans and Haran, those are uh, both in Mesopotamia. So what we see with Abraham in this, this key figure of Israel's history is that he didn't quite completely follow what God had called him to do. He still remained. And Stephen is quick to point out that he, he remained there until his father was dead. So there was this period of time where Abraham had partially listened to God, moved out, but he was still in the area that God had called him to leave. And he didn't leave until his father was dead. And we see at the end of verse 4 that he moved him. So God moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So this was a, by way of a process. God is using this pagan Abraham, growing him in, in his trust of this God Yahweh who has appeared to him. And he's pulling him out of this land to a place that God has called him. And to the land which they... He's, as he's speaking to the religious leaders in which you now dwell. And so he, he, got, he eventually ended up in this current land of Israel. Now, we see that Stephen is going to move on to declare the promise. So God gave him no inheritance in, uh, in it, in the land, that is, not enough to set his foot on. Not even when Abraham, or but even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. So we see the promise given to Abraham, but it wasn't actually realized by Abraham. But what was it promised to? Abraham and his descendants. So it's interesting because at the time of the promise, Abraham had no child and therefore had no potential descendants that this land could go to. So this required faith on the part of Abraham. 
And Stephen is making the point that the relationship with God is on the basis of faith and not outward evidences. See, all God's dealings with Israel require faith on their part. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And later on in verse 8, it says, By faith, and I would add in there, though imperfect, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so we see Abraham, uh, this land that was promised to him and his descendants, were tied together in this promise that Abraham it required faith on Abraham's part that God would fulfill. Now, God told Abraham what would actually happen to his descendants. In verse 6, let's look. It says, But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so God told Abraham what was going to happen to his descendants. How this promise actually wouldn't be fulfilled till 400 years later. That they were going to dwell in a foreign land. That, and this is actually set in contrast to the promise of this land. This promise wouldn't be realized in the lifetime of Abraham. But this promise would be according to God's timing. And that's an important thing to remember. That God had a timing and a plan in which they would receive this promise. But until that time, Abraham's descendants would dwell in a foreign land. Now during this time of 400 years, God said that they would be in bondage and they would be oppressed. And we'll get a little bit more insight into that as Stephen goes on, but we'll remember that this was the time of uh, Israel in Egypt under a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. But God would judge that nation, he says, in a, uh, that oppressed Israel. That God would defend Israel and judge those who oppressed them. That this wasn't something... Uh, that God was just going to let go by, but that he is the judge and the, and the defender of Israel. And we also see that he was with his people and able to take care of them and to fulfill the promise no matter what the situation is. He was with his people and able to take care of them no matter what the situation was. Do you need to hear that today? Do you need to be reminded of that? God is not uh, overcome by any situation. He's with his people and he's able to take care of them. If you're his, his son or daughter today, he is with you and he's able to take care of you no matter what it is. It says, God goes on to, in his explanation to Abraham that his descendants would eventually come out of that place of oppression, of slavery, and that they would serve God in this land, in Israel. And so there was this looking forward to this fulfillment of God's promise. We also want to see that uh, Stephen is introducing uh, the deliverance of God here in this in those words, that I will judge and they shall come out. This is a key phrase that I noticed throughout the whole of, of Stephen's message. It's this deliverance of God. And it's working up to show that the religious leaders, what they were missing was, they were looking for and trusting in deliverance 
from their sin through obedience to the law and the keeping of all these traditions by worshiping in the temple. But as we know, the law doesn't, it can't deliver anybody. But what the law was meant to do was to drive uh, one to Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, who says, who came not to destroy the law, but to fill the law. But we see this this idea of deliverance, this need for deliverance uh, brought up in this place and that God is the ultimate deliverer. I will judge and they shall come out. And so we see God would deliver his people from their oppression and preserve them in difficulties and fulfill his promise promise to them. And then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, another aspect, which was this sign, actually, of the covenant of God that was made with Abraham, which would be passed down from, uh, through the generation, through Abraham's lineage, a sign that that promise was not only to Abraham, but to Isaac and to Jacob and then to the, to the twelve and, and all of Israel. So a couple of points to remember when we're looking at this, that God is not limited to one location. This is one of the points that Stephen is trying to make for the Jewish Jewish leaders. God doesn't live in a church building or a temple somewhere. God is bigger than that. And and Stephen will say that as we look next week, and he'll describe it in in a greater way. But he also isn't confined to one geographic location. As we see uh, God calling out to Abraham when he's in Mesopotamia. But we also see that there's this process of deliverance that the Lord is working out through his chosen people. God is with his people and that he's able to preserve them through even times of bondage and oppression. And God has, God has and will provide a deliverer. And so as we move on, let's look at verse 9 and read this next section here. It says, And the patriarchs became envious, speaking of the twelve sons of Jacob, became envious and sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. And so we see God preserves his delivery plan through Joseph. When we get this picture, and some of us who have grown up in the church or been around for a while, we remember some of these stories. We have Joseph, right? He had that uh, beautiful coat that his father gave him of many colors and kind of separated him. It, it displayed the favor that he had um, from his father, kind of set him apart from his brothers. And Stephen points out that the patriarchs became envious of Joseph and sold him into slavery. They had to get rid of this kid. And Stephen, we know also from that story that uh, Joseph had these visions where his family was going to worship him, and that didn't help either. You know, uh, Joseph getting a big head is what they thought, and he's just telling them these dreams, and maybe he was, who knows. But he was telling them these dreams, but and it caused his brothers to become envious and to sell him into slavery. They actually wanted to kill him, but uh, one of his brothers said, "No, let's not. Let's let's uh, throw him in this pit, and we'll sell him off into slavery." And so Stephen points out that Joseph's 
brothers became envious of him, and it, this envy began to boil up in them. It was, a, it was burning in their hearts, and boiling over until they sold him into slavery. And slavery will reflect back to Abraham's descendants being oppressed. This was the beginning of, of Abraham's descendants going into this time of oppression. But first it happened to Joseph. And we see that Joseph is a picture of Jesus, who was rejected by his brothers, and later became a savior to them. A point that Stephen will make to the religious leaders, that they have rejected Jesus, whom God has sent. See, God, we see, though, was with him at the end of verse 9. But God was with him. Again, God was, is described as being with his people, knowing what is happening to them earlier uh, in the passage with Abraham. And here we see God was with Joseph. And what does it say? He delivered Joseph out of all his troubles. You see, Joseph experienced this with, with God. But what was Joseph missing that the Jewish leaders had? Well, Joseph had no temple, right? He had no special way of relating to God. He was also, what was the location? He was in Egypt. Egypt, far from the promised land. And we see that God was with him. God is not held down by a location or a place. And we see God giving him wisdom, giving him the ability to interpret dreams. God delivering him or snatching him out from all of his troubles. Snatching him out of the pit. Snatching him out of the trouble at Potiphar's house. Snatching him out of prison. And God would use him to deliver or to snatch out his family from a time of famine and peril. But God gave him favor and wisdom, it says, in the house or in the presence of Pharaoh. We see Pharaoh making him a governor over Egypt in his house. And Joseph, who was rejected by his own, is exalted by a Gentile. You notice that? You notice the contrast there? Those, those religious leaders that, that uh, Stephen is speaking to, he's, he's making a point that even those outside of God's plan recognized something special about God's deliverer and received him. And we see this Gentile Pharaoh raising Joseph up to a place of exaltation. And God was with Joseph in this place. Jesus, who was currently rejected by the Jews, not all of them, remember there was somewhere around maybe 20,000 followers of Christ at this time, would be received and exalted among the Gentile nations. This is pointing forward to where the book of Acts is going. Stephen's message is setting us up to see where, where the story continues, that those outside of Jerusalem and Judea, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, would receive Jesus and, and exalt him as the Christ, the Messiah. Yet, there were those that should know and should come to Jesus that weren't, shouldn't have this understanding because it was written in their word, in their history. But a famine, a great trouble came over the land of Canaan and Egypt. And the patriarchs, they couldn't find any food and Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt and sent his son. Now, it's interesting to note that they, it says the second time in verse 13 that Joseph was made known to his brothers. We'll see later on in our study this morning that it took a second appearance of Moses for his own to receive him. And we'll dig into that a little bit more. But it was the second time they went that Joseph was fully revealed to his brothers. The one who re they rejected, the one whom they thought was dead and gone, their own brother had become their savior. I mean, come on now. How can that not further point to Jesus, that 
the one their own brother had come to save, to redeem, and they rejected him. Do you see that it was Jesus written in their history, pointing to Israel's rejection of this Messiah, rejected by his own? So Joseph sent to have his whole family come to Egypt after that. He, he made himself known to his family. And we see that whole congregation drawn down there. The, uh, it says 75 people. Now there is, um, there's different, uh, you might see it in your Bible where it says 70 people. And uh, they resolve this by saying that Stephen was speaking from the uh, knowing the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that the way they counted the people that went down uh, from uh, Canaan, Joseph's family, that this number included Joseph's own family, his, his grandkids and such. And so that's how they come up to the total of 75 people. So if you are one that gets easily hung up by those little differences in translations, there are uh, good and reasonable explanations by those, uh, for those. But Stephen is speaking here, and he says that the whole family went down, and eventually they died there, and they were buried at Shechem. Now, Shechem is it's the capital of Samaria. And it's highlighted here because even in this story of Acts that we're studying through, the next people group to hear uh, the gospel will be those in Samaria. These uh, people that were viewed by the Israelites as, or the, by the Jews as half-breeds. They, they did not like each other. They were very uh, much opposed to one another. But, uh, and, and even Stephen bringing this up might cause a little bit of frustration with the religious leaders. But this is true in what had happened. And so uh, the message of the gospel is going to go out to Samaria. And he's highlighting this place that God is not limited by a location. Remember, all of this is happening in Egypt. God has provided provided a deliverer. Though rejected by his brothers, Joseph would become their savior. And Israel has a a history of rejecting their deliverers. Those are the key points that we want to remember. And then the new one that was introduced was God's timing. You think about God's timing, how it's going to be 400 years till they they receive the fulfillment of the promise. And then here we see God's timing as Joseph, even as we remember back what is written about Joseph's life, how the, the years that were spent in each one of those places, the place of slavery and then the place of, in Potiphar's house and then the place in prison before God had, uh, we know that he was in prison for two years at least before Potiphar had, uh, had the dream, or not Potiphar, Pharaoh had the dream and needed the revelation and that, exalt, that situation exalting Joseph uh, to a place of prominence. So God's timing, we want to realize that God is working, he's at work in history And that's how this next section of verse 17 starts. God delivering Israel by Moses. We see that in verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham. You see, as time goes on, it's coming to a a conclusion. This this promise that God had made to Abraham was coming to a point. This this year, uh, this time of 400 years was drawing near. And it says that the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Again, there's the location. This is all happening in Egypt, outside of Israel, till another king arose and did not know Joseph. And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born. Notice the timing of God. And he was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. 
But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So we see this promise coming near, and the people grew and multiplied. This was a time of flourishing, really, uh, for Israel to grow into a large people group. They had all that they needed down there. The Lord was multiplying them and growing them. But then we read about this other king who did not know Joseph, didn't, didn't recognize the contributions that Joseph made, but began to see Israel as a threat. And this man, he says, dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies. Now, remember, there was this, uh, this time where uh, they were concerned that the people would overtake them. And it was commanded by Pharaoh that all the children of a certain age needed to be uh, killed. And this was actually uh, a thing that would occur back in, in history. There's records in the New Testament where it was practiced by non-Jews of the day by taking unwanted babies and leaving them outside to die. And this was a detestable thing in the eyes of Israelites and the Jews. And they would oftentimes, there was reports and, uh, of them taking these kids in and adopting them. But that's the term that Stephen is using to draw a connection with what the, the religious leaders would have known, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now, this was the time that Moses was born. This was the time in which God had, uh, had, was going to raise up one, a deliverer, and we see that he was well-pleasing to God. And we even know from Moses' story that he was uh, able to be brought up in his own home, his mother nursing him till three months. And then when he, uh, or he was able to be hidden for three months, sorry. And then they put him out and put him into this ark, right? And put him onto the, into the river. And who was there but Pharaoh's daughter saw him. And it says she took him away. Who is receiving the deliverer that God is raising up? Pharaoh's daughter, a Gentile, somebody who is not of the house of Israel. And so we're seeing, we need to keep these things in mind because we're looking forward to the story that, that God, the chosen deliverer, was received by a people that were not his own. Not that they wouldn't have received him, but that's the point that's being made. And then we see that uh, Moses is being adopted, delivered from being uh, killed. And then he would be brought up in the house of Pharaoh and learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And it was in that way that, that God raised him up to be mighty in words and deeds. So he was a he was raised in the house of a Gentile. He was trained in all their ways. But God, that was who God was going to use to bring uh, deliverance to Israel. Now, in verse 23, it says, Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understand that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But when he or but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, Moses away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller or sojourner in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So 40 years have passed where Moses has been raised in the light, uh, in, uh, by Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter and learned in all the ways of the Egyptians. And we see that it came into his heart. I thought that was an interesting phrase. It says that... Um, or what that, that phrase 
means is it came up as if from the lower depths of his nature. Something that God had placed in his heart to know, man, I must be here for a specific reason. The Lord must have placed me, a Hebrew, in this household. With, with all of this, I think he had a clue of what he was supposed to be doing, right? And that's why he came down and it says that uh, this was one of those appointed times of God. God moved in Moses' heart. Uh, Pastor David Gusick draws a correlation of Moses with Jesus here. He says, at an appointed time, Moses came down from his royal throne out of care and concern for his brethren. This was another way that Moses was like Jesus, who would come after him. See the correlation? We have one who's been, uh, who is exalted coming down to where his brethren are, seeking to deliver them out of care and concern for his brethren. He thought that the, his people would have understood this, but they didn't. That, he would, that God would deliver them by his hand, but they didn't understand it. And so he has this interaction with his people, and, and we know that uh, after having the interaction there with those men, that Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian. Again, another location that is outside of Israel. God is not uh, limited by location. And we see that God, God blessed uh, Moses. It's interesting to note, okay, Stephen tells us that he had two sons. Well, having children spoke of God's blessing, right? Spoke of God uh, blessing uh, a, a woman or a man. And Moses, after he had fled and was dwelling in Midian, he was, it was a place of blessing. He had two sons. And in verse 30, it says, And when the 40 years had passed, another set of 40 years, so we're looking at an 80-year-old Moses, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw, he marveled at the sight as he drew near to observe. And the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your feet, or take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. Come now, I will send. Or, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So we see another 40 years pass, this time where Moses is in Midian. And it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Now we know this isn't just any angel, but it is actually God uh, appearing to Moses in this flame of fire uh, because it says that the voice of the Lord came to him uh, and says, I, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. So he has this uh, experience with God while in the wilderness there in Midian. And Moses, we're told, is, uh, the Lord has told Moses to take your sandals off your feet because this is holy ground. Now to the, the Jewish leaders, there was no holier ground than the temple, than where God had placed his temple there in Israel. People are talking about scooping up sand and taking it home with them to their other foreign lands so they might have a little place of sand uh, that's recorded um, for us. And people wanted to do that, but we see here that the place is holy. It's, it's a term reserved, the Jews reserved just for the temple, but here God says it's on Mount Sinai. It's the place where His presence is, where His presence dwells. That's where holy ground is. And so another uh, insinuation from uh, Israel's history by Stephen that God is not limited by a location, but he is, it's holy where he is. And God has seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. Again, God's faithfulness to deliver his people. And I will send you to Egypt. And who is going to be the deliverer? Moses. 
So we have the location happening in Midian here. We have Moses that's uh, going to be the deliverer, and he's sent back to Egypt. Now, in verse 35, as we conclude our study for this morning, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer? Now, the people saw Moses as a judge, like he's because they were fighting with one another. They saw him like, who are you going to tell me what to do? You don't even live like us. You're up there in your high tower, and you're going to come down and do your thing for us. But God says that um, he is the one that he sent to be a ruler, a leader, one that would provide the instructions, but a deliverer as well. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And we learn uh, here that he brought them out in verse 36 after he has shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So this time of deliverance occurred in many areas throughout Egypt on their way through the Red Sea and then in the wilderness. But Moses is the one that was commissioned to do this work. Moses, whom they rejected, was the one that God had sent by the hand of the angel. Now, another correlation here is we see that Moses was sent by God to be that deliverer, to proclaim deliverance, to lead the people of Israel out. And it was attested to them by signs and wonders. Now, what has the disciples been doing as they proclaim the gospel? Signs and wonders. We see that God was attesting to the message being preached through the signs and the wonders that were being done. And they were, the Israeli leaders here at the time, the Jewish leaders, they were not willing to recognize those things. And though, though they followed Moses out from Egypt and were delivered from that slavery, we'll see as we look next week that they still would reject him, even after all of these things. But Stephen has illustrated how God had raised up a plan for the deliverance of his people through Abraham, how God preserved his plan for deliverance through Joseph, and how historically Israel has continued to reject God's deliverance in the story of Israel's fathers. And in this we see there's a tragedy of humanity's tendency to resist God's plan for deliverance. You see, the story of deliverance actually begins way beyond, way before uh, Abraham in the garden where God had placed God, uh, where God had placed man to enjoy rich fellowship in a sinless and perfect environment. And there was only one command that was given to man at that time, and that was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Because in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Now, the the temptation to reject God's, came, uh, God's command came by the way of the serpent, we know. And we see man and his wife disobey God and sever a perfect relationship with God. And God had to send them out of the garden, that place of perfect fellowship and that place of close relationship with God. And it's at this time where we hear God first speak of a deliverer when he is cursing that serpent for what he has done. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God first told of this seed, speaking of Jesus, who God would send to deliver mankind from the spiritual death of their disobedience, that their disobedience had brought upon them. Mankind has since then been alienated from God. The story grows worse and worse from that point on. Sin and brokenness filling the earth. And then God chooses a man named Abraham, whose lineage that he is going to commit himself to, to bring this promised seed of the woman through this great deliverer, Jesus Christ. Israel's concern for the land and the law was for their... The, the land and their law. That's what their concern was for, not their deliverance from sin. They were focused on the wrong thing. They had the land and the law, and they were God's special people, but they were rejecting God's own son for the law and the land. The land and the law was a means, not an end. 
They were a means that would ultimately culminate in Jesus Christ. Jesus. And so we do encounter this human condition, this problem that the Jews have, that we have the propensity to reject God's Savior, to return away from Jesus. We reject Him for many reasons. But in reality, though Israel claimed to honor God, and follow the law. They didn't know God because they were rejecting Jesus, the Messiah. In John chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus says, there is only one deliverer that can save you from, the sin, from your sins. And that, is, that is me. That is him. Jesus Christ. And so, uh, let's pray. It's, this is a history lesson, right? It's not super exciting. But we have to track along some of these points. We have to see how God is moving. It's important to have an understanding of how God is working throughout Scripture, leading to these points. Because these books don't necessarily stand on their own. They are all uh, one message that is pointing to Jesus in its totality. And so from the beginning pages, we, we, we understand why Jesus had to come. And in the ending pages, we see him as the king enthroned above, ruling and reigning in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray, well, first off, Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that you are not, um, you are not stuck to one location, Lord, that you are... Uh, all-powerful, almighty, Lord, omnipresent, Lord, working where you wish, Lord, doing and accomplishing your will in and through your people. Lord, that, um, Lord, that salvation has been extended beyond just uh, Israel, Lord, but all who have faith, Lord, the word says, are Israel. So, Lord, we just thank you for, for Christ, Lord. We thank you for his sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for uh, his death upon the cross that, that brings forgiveness and of sin, Lord, and acceptance in you, Lord. That it isn't bound in some keeping of the law. It's not bound in some association with some land, Lord. But, Lord, that all those things were just uh, means of bringing about our Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord. And we thank you for that. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, continue to just work in our hearts, Lord, and to... Um, to stir within us, Lord, the message of the gospel, Lord, as we look to your return, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.